Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. According to the website of the U.S. Postal Service, their motto, chiseled in gray granite over the entrance to the New York City Post Office on 8th Avenue, comes from an ancient account of the Persian Wars by the Greek historian Herodotus. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. The saying lauds the fidelity of mounted Persian couriers who, during Persia's war with the Greeks, braved all manner of obstacles to ensure the delivery of royal dispatches. To borrow from St. Paul, such men clearly have a zeal for God, but insofar as they carry messages from the wrong king in the service of Persia's war, their zeal is not in accordance with knowledge. In the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are also called to be couriers, not of a worldly message with worldly concerns, but of Scripture. Insofar as their zeal lacks understanding, no matter how hard they row against the elements, they will never match the speed or efficacy of Jesus, who without boat or mount easily achieves the swift completion of his appointed rounds. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 164 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Both Richard and I are sick. I think Richard got the worst of it. So if we sound a little bit groggy today or less cheerful, there's a legitimate reason for that. And it's not just the gospel. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we're going to tackle Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. Before we start with that section of the gospel today, wanted to address a couple of comments that came in from listeners. The first was really helpful. It was from Dr. Michael Lottie, and he was reflecting on last week's episode where Richard pointed out that the organizing in 50s and 100s of the people pertained to instruction in the story of Moses, that you would organize the people into groups so that they could be organized unto instruction. Dr. Lottie points out that another organization in late antiquity also organized in 50s and 100s to give instruction, and that was the Roman army. And that fits very nicely with our reading of the story of the loaves and the fishes, Richard. Right, and the Romans were also providing food. That was one thing that the Roman army absolutely had to do, was provide food for their people, literal bread. Whereas Jesus here is trying to stress with the disciples that there is a spiritual bread that is the teaching that they're trying to provide. Having the Roman army as a counterbalance really does stress in a good way what we're trying to say about the feeding of the 5,000 here. It stresses the character of Pauline Table Fellowship. It's a meal 
where people are organized to be fed with the teaching, but it's Jews and Gentiles being organized together. We talked about the expansion of God's tent and the metaphor of the Twelve, the metaphor of Abraham's household, and this just underscores the fact that this is not a Jewish meal, this is not a Greek meal, this is not a Latin meal, this is a meal for God's flock, which is anyone and everyone who hears the voice of the shepherd crying out in the wilderness. The other question that came across, and people struggle with this all the time, Richard, and that's this insistence that the mention of the 5,000 does not refer to the growth of the population of the church. And this is a very important point. The story itself is about the multiplication of the bread. It is not about the multiplication of the sheep. It's about the multiplication of the food, which, as we understand, is the teaching. And that's what's being represented here, and that's what's growing here. I would remind people of a point you made last week, Richard, and that is that just because the loaves grew to feed 5,000 doesn't mean that there were 5,000 disciples. The loaves grew to feed 5,000, which means 5,000 were given the opportunity. So we don't work to get 5,000 people in our ranks. We work to make sure the bread spreads as far as possible to give as many people as possible the opportunity to eat and to feed others. It's a different mindset. Yes, it's not about growing your church to be as big as it can. It's about feeding as many people as you can. There is a distinction, and I think that's being drawn here because this is what we've had throughout the book of Mark. Jesus is tirelessly working to feed as many people with the bread of life, with his teaching, as humanly possible. That's why he has disciples, is so that they can go out and teach without him because he doesn't have enough time in his earthly life to be able to teach everybody. It's about reaching as many people as possible with the bread. It's not about growing your institution to a certain size. That's the distinction. I mean, just because you have people in the institution doesn't mean that you're feeding them. You constantly have to be going out to be feeding And that's what Jesus is emphasizing, and that's something that's counterintuitive to churches, that you have to be going out to teach, go out to teach, go out to teach constantly. And if you fall in the trap of this deep-rooted sin in the churches, of saying that we need to take care of our own needs before we go out, you will run out of bread. This is the sin the Bible's critiquing. It's the sin that is the most intuitive to parish councils. Yes, Father, we should help the community, but first we need to make sure we have our own house in order. No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, let's take some time to get our own house in order so that we can then feed others. He says what we will hear again in the first word of the first verse of the section we're reading today. Immediately, a feast. In verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. Jesus was teaching, 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 teaching. He did not have a house. He had nothing to get in order. There was one thing he had to get in order, and that was to get the teaching out. And then he said, hey, there's 12 of you guys. Go to the other side and start teaching over there. I'll meet you, but your job is to go over there and teach. Jesus is not about getting his house in order. Jesus is anti-house. Jesus is only pro-teaching. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. And of course here, Richard, whenever we hear about 
a mountain or about Jesus going to a mountain, it should call to mind certain references in the Pentateuch, specifically the mountain where the law was given, the Mount of Sinai. It could also raise questions about a confrontation with idolatry because Sinai is prominent because it stands as an anti-idolatry metaphor. The mountain is where people went to go worship the gods that they made up, the gods of nature, the gods fashioned by hand. Baal was the god of the mountain. He was the god of the weather. There were many Baalim in the ancient world because people would see a mountain. They would see a beautiful scene in nature, and they would, from time immemorial, look at each other and say, see, there's proof that there are gods. And this is what Scripture is critiquing. Scripture is saying on Sinai that you don't go to the mountain to be impressed with how big the mountain is. You go to the mountain to receive an instruction written with letters from a God whom you cannot see. Right. I mean, the mountain often represents where one receives revelation. It's a mosaic metaphor, clearly. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He already told his disciples to go and they're already halfway across, so they can't really turn around and come back, and they can't hear him if he tells them to come back. So it leaves a question here, you know, how are they going to meet up again? What are they going to do? Evidently, there's no spare boats here on the side. And as always, it's a pickle of his own making. Jesus will often put himself in situations so that he can solve them. Because we know that the whole story of Jesus is to make sure that Jesus is able to get the teaching everywhere. And so here's the first time where it looks like, uh uh-oh, is the teaching stuck? Is Jesus stuck? Is Jesus not going to go someplace? Does that mean the teaching can't go? Is the teaching stalled? That's the question. And so how is Jesus going to get out of this so that the teaching can continue? We also see Jesus demonstrating that just because you killed the prophet, it doesn't mean you can stop Jesus. You can't stop the bread from growing. You can't stop the teaching from going out. So if I were to pick a passage in the Bible to be the passage that would become the motto of the U.S. Postal Service, it would be Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. Because what we'll see is something you were talking about earlier, Richard. Nothing can stop the voice in the wilderness. Not inclement weather, not the elements, not nature, not even the death of the prophet. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. So, not only can they not stop Jesus, not only can they not stop the teaching from moving forward, but while they're relying on the things that men make with their own hands, they're relying on the temple. The boat is a metaphor in the New Testament, especially in Acts. It's a metaphor for the church infrastructure, the building, so to speak. They're busy futzing around trying to cross the Roman Sea with their temple. Jesus, relying only on the bread he received on the mountain, is floating across the water with no issue. This scene reminds me of riding in traffic in New York City, where you're stuck there in traffic and you notice that the people walking past you are moving faster than you are. Here the people are toiling and rowing and the wind is against them, and Jesus is just walking right past them, just on foot. 
there really is nothing that's going to stop him. So even when he was all by himself, isolated, we're wondering how he's going to get across. Sure enough, he's able to get across without any aid whatsoever, even across the sea. He doesn't even need a boat. There's nothing that can stop the word from progressing. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. And here, the word for ghost is not related to spirit. It's not psihi, it's not nevma, which pertain to their Hebrew antecedents in the Old Testament. The word is phantasma. Mark is telling you they're seeing a phantom. They're mistaking the word for something that is like a phantom. It has no substance, something transient, a ghost. And when you hear this in the context of the death of John the Baptist, it's as though they've killed the prophet and the word is still moving forth on the land. And at first glance, is that the ghost of John the Baptist? Is that a ghost that we see? What's going on? They're terrified. And I think this fear is really important in Mark, because the question of whom you fear and what you fear is a central issue, and that's where the gospel will land in its final chapters. Notice that the disciples are completely constrained by the world. I mean, with the 5,000, you know, they're worried, oh, are they going to, they, they shouldn't stay around, they don't have enough to eat, and oh, we can't move forward because there's a wind, and it's really hard to get across the sea, and Jesus is like, no, just feed them. No, let's just, if we can't get across the boat, then we'll just walk. Nothing can constrain Jesus, and the disciples are still stuck in this mindset that it's not about the teaching, that they're still constrained by the constraints of the natural world. And Jesus's teaching is not constrained by the natural world. And that's the difference. People get excited about the supernatural abilities of Jesus. That's not the point. The point is that the word continues to go out. Again, going back to the very practical situation that you brought up, Father, we have to make sure our own house is in order before we go and help the community, is also assuming the constraints of the world in the same way as the disciples. And when that happens, you're going to get stalled out in the middle of the sea and the teaching is going to get nowhere. What you have to do is you have to do it in the way that Jesus says and said, oh, there's a sea? Well, and I don't have a boat? Okay, I guess I'll just walk then. I think this fear here, Richard, is related to what you're saying, and I think it's extremely technical. Because at the end of Mark, when they run to the tomb, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's a very serious problem. Because the word is breaking free. You murdered John the Baptist. This is, again, a kind of prefiguration of the resurrection of Christ and Mark. You killed the prophet, but yet Jesus is still active. He's still moving. The bread is still growing, the seed is still being spread, and nothing can stop him. And you look at that, and instead of rejoicing, you're afraid. You're afraid because you know that if the Lord is resurrected, if John the Baptist is not dead even though Herod killed him, if the voice of the prophet is still crying out in the wilderness, and you are on the wrong side of that voice, it is terrifying that he can still move, that he's still taking action. And I think the one who should be most terrified is Herod. The disciples also, because of their materialism and their betrayal of Jesus, which is foreshadowed in these different examples in Mark. But it's anyone who opposed God, especially the king. And the king's power is predicated on 
the very things that the disciples are giving themselves over to, like the question of whether we have enough money to feed the people. Don't forget that the final battle that Jesus has to fight is against the Romans on the cross. And the point that Jesus is making on the cross is that the greatest strength, the greatest superpower with their cruelest method of oppression still can't hold down the word. It still can't prevent the word from spreading. And this is what Jesus is working towards every step of the way. And the disciples were afraid when they saw him walking across the water because they thought it was a ghost. And they were afraid when they saw an empty tomb because they thought someone stole his body or something. They are afraid because they misunderstand the idea that nothing can hold down the word. But it's important, Richard, because modern Christians make out of the resurrection a fairy tale that is meant to act like a lip balm to make everybody feel better about life. And this is a deep betrayal. The resurrection is a resurrection unto judgment. You are raised to be judged. The resurrection is about accountability. It's about the totality of God's aegis. It's about the fact that he controls everything from the alpha to the omega. It's the supplanting of the authority of Pharaoh, the authority of the pyramids. The pyramids were built to show the peasants that you could not escape Pharaoh in death. That is how eternal life functioned in ancient Egyptian religion. But in Scripture, the resurrection is co-opted and corrected according to biblical teaching to demonstrate that God's judgment is totally encompassing and no one, not even the king, can escape it, not even Pharaoh, not even Herod, not even Caesar. He turns it all upside down. So if you oppose the teaching, and now the teaching is coming, If you opposed Jesus and now Jesus has been raised, it is not good news for you that he has been raised, and you should be afraid. Christians don't talk this way because they have reduced religion to a lip balm for their psychological insecurities. Christians believe in earthly powers. They believe in the powers of the sea and the wind and of Caesar and of the army. And these are the powers that they believe in, where Jesus, every step of the way, is making the point that his teaching surpasses all of those powers. And when we get excited about Easter when it comes, the whole point of Easter is that the earthly powers were not able to keep down the teaching, that the teaching was going to continue to be taught in spite of the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, that it was not Jesus's earthly life, even, that was the source of the teaching, that the teaching could continue, and the teaching will continue, and the teaching will continue to go out, and there's nothing to stop it. So when we get excited on Pascha, on Easter, we want to remember that it's about the teaching going out. So I'm going to go back again to what you said, Father. Don't wait until your house is in order. Jesus's house was destroyed. 
and it was not enough to keep the teaching down. So don't wait till your house is in order. You have to do it today. As you said, Father, this is a resurrection unto judgment. How did we work with the teaching that we were given? As we read elsewhere in the parable of the talents, what do we do with the teaching that's given to us? If we sat on it until our house was in order, we're going to be in big trouble. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And here, God always has to reassure people not to be afraid. He always has to remind them that if you just accept my instruction and recognize my words, if you recognize the voice of the shepherd, you have nothing to fear. You are only God's enemy when you rebel against his voice. Take courage. Don't be afraid. This formula, do not be afraid, in Hebrew, al-tirah, this is a common phrase used when the prophet is called. When calling the prophet al-tirah, do not be afraid. Jesus is addressing the disciples here as God addresses the prophets elsewhere. And the prophets are those who are somewhat resistant carry God's word. These disciples show the same kind of resistance and blindness, and they need to be able to show that they can carry the word. And so they need to be ready to carry the word. So they're told, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. And my question here, why are they astonished? This is not the first time in Mark that Jesus demonstrated that the teaching of his father affords him power over the elements. Why are they astonished? I know people hear this and say, ooh, it was amazing. Look what Jesus did. But their astonishment, as the next verse will show us, is irrelevant and useless. They're astonished not because they're impressed. They're astonished because of the hardness of their hearts. They're still refusing to understand and to accept and embrace that the voice of the shepherd is the voice of God. They still think it's about Jesus. They don't understand that this is about the word. They think, oh, wow, look what Jesus can do. When Jesus is making the point, no, this is what we do with the teaching. And when the disciples went out and they were healing as well, I mean, the miracle comes with the teaching, not with the guy. And so that's what Jesus has been trying to teach. But sure enough, even when he does this, they're still impressed with Jesus. And they're still amazed because they think it's about the man, Jesus, and his cool powers, but not about the teaching, that nothing can stop the teaching. They missed the point. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. And this is, again, a reference to the prophets. It harkens back to the Markan admonition about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Their heart was hardened like the heart of Pharaoh in Exodus, like the heart of the king in Deuteronomy. Their heart was hardened. They're still refusing to understand. And if you refuse to understand in the Bible, God will make sure you never understand for the sake of the nations. On the one hand, you could say, well, you know, the miracle of the loaves was pretty amazing. 
And the miracle of calming the waters is pretty amazing. It seems like a natural re reaction to say, if you gain something from the miracle of the loaves, it's that Jesus can really do amazing things. So if Jesus is doing another amazing thing, you shouldn't be impressed by him doing amazing thing after amazing thing. But then I think you're missing the point. The point, as we discussed about the loaves, is that the word is always going to go out. There's always more word that can continue to expand, that can continue to spread. There's always more seed to go out. There's always more to be shared. This is, I think, a challenge, again, when it comes to Easter. When we hear about Jesus' resurrection, we should not be amazed. We should not be amazed at the resurrection. We should not be amazed, ooh, wow, look, Jesus was even able to come back from the dead. No, it's not, ooh, Jesus came back from the dead. It's the word could not be stopped. Did you not learn anything from the miracle of the loaves? Did you not learn anything from Jesus calming the waters? Nothing can stop the word. Don't be amazed at the resurrection. Understand you're under judgment at the resurrection. Because what you do with this teaching, do you sit on it? Do you sit in a boat and paddle and go nowhere? Or do you get out and walk, even across the sea, to make sure the word gets there? You need to be in this life submitting to the word, submitting to the teaching, so that on the day of resurrection, when the Lord comes in power, riding upon the Ezekielian clouds, to execute judgment, and to separate the sheep from the goats in Matthew. You need to have already been submitting to the word so that you will not be bowled over by the word in its final victory lap on earth. This is the point. This is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the Lord coming in power and the power of the gospel and the Son of Man putting everything in subjection under his feet by the will of God the Father. This is the deal. So the resurrection is a very serious matter. And to worship the resurrection is to submit to the teaching so that when the Lord separates the wheat from the chaff, he would not say to you, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. That's what this is about. So please, I ask everyone in the spirit of Lent to think carefully about how you prepare yourself for the judgment that will be revealed in the Paschal service. Everyone wants to celebrate, but be careful what you're celebrating. Don't celebrate that you had enough denarii to feed the people bread. If you do that, it's not going to work out for you. Have a great week, Dr. Penton. I hope that you heal quickly. Thank you. You too, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.